If you blink in Haggai, you will miss it, all right? It's two chapters, and we finish it up today, but it's one of those that I'm sure if you're in a fresh start, it is not finished. You are still in the beginning. So fresh starts are refreshing. Uh, We like them because uh, they give us new opportunities. This year, we had New Year's just a month ago now, and a little over a month. We got two for the price of one. We got a new year and a new decade all rolled up in one. So all in the same day. We like new cars. We like new jobs. We like new houses. We like new clothes. We like new relationships. We like, we like new because new gives us a sense of being refreshed. Especially though, there's something about driving off the lot, even though you don't want to make the payments, driving off the lot in a new car. That new car smell. You know, it's every, all the bells and whistles are great and it's all clean, at least for a week anyway. You know, you say, when you get that new car, you drive, at least I do. I say, I'm never going to eat in this car, never going to drink in this car. And then a week later, you got spills and you got french fries down in the cracks and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, you just kind of roll with it when, when, you, when you get a new car. But there's something that we cannot figure out how to reproduce. And that is the new car smell. I don't know what it is. I read an article this week that somebody calls that a euphoric honeymoon period of a new, new, of a new ride. Euphoric honeymoon. All right. Now, I like a honeymoon and I like euphoria and I like them put together whenever they happen together. I never would have put euphoric honeymoon of a new car, but it really kind of is. I mean, you're kind of sitting there in that smell and you can't reproduce it. I mean, they've come out with sprays now that you can spray in your car, but it doesn't smell the same. It's not the same. But you know... Uh, it's kind of interesting when you dive behind that new car smell, what it actually is that you're smelling. Uh, actually, U.S. News & World Report uh, reported what it uh, is that we're smelling. The new car smell is made up of a group of chemicals known as volatile organic compounds, VOC. Just saying volatile co- uh, uh, organic compounds just sounds nasty. The, these VOCs can be found in adhesives, glue. You're sniffing glue, okay? Fabrics, plastics, and other bits that are used in the construction of the vehicle. So basically what we're addicted to is glue. You're sniffing glue. You're enjoying the smell of glue. Uh, that's not a good thing, okay? That's not recommended. Don't go out and sniff glue and try it. I had some friends in high school that were doing that, and it's just not good for the brain. It's not good all the way around, so don't try it. But there's something about it when it's a new car, we kind of like it. We like the, those volatile organic compounds going into the nostrils, into our brains, killing our brain cells or whatever. So basically a honeymoon is sniffing glue if, you, if it's driving a new car. There are fresh starts and a new car is a fresh start, but there are those I want to call are toxic fresh starts. Not just because you're sniffing glue, but because of it's a cosmetic exterior fresh start. Again, new clothes. Fresh start on the outside, but what about the person on the other side of the clothes? New job. New job's great. Get a new desk, new, new computers, new, new culture, new, new, new. But at the same time, you're the same, still the same old person. All right? So just because you change the circumstances around you doesn't mean you truly had a fresh start. 
It's the toxic fresh starts that I want us to be aware of and be cautious of because sometimes we will trade what we need to have as a deep dive fresh start for some cosmetic layer of a new hairdo, of a new relationship, of a new something out there that we miss the internal workings of a fresh start. See, character is an internal fresh start. Circumstances are external. We will sometimes shortcut the internal, the long-term, the, the really good, healthy, fresh starts for just substituting it in and inserting some circumstantial change. And that's what I want to warn us against. When we talk about fresh starts, it's not some cosmetic exterior that needs to change. I want to say it's more of an internal. So what is the difference between a toxic fresh start and a clean fresh start, a clean, sustainable fresh start. Well, let me tell you that this is one element that you cannot get away from. 34 times in 38 verses of Haggai, he refers to one particular person. I'll let you figure that out. If you were here last week, you might remember who that person is, okay? 34 times in 30. The secret sauce, if you will, of a fresh start is this person, this entity this God, the Lord. Okay, let me tell you the story of Nick. Nick was a, is, is a guy who finds his way in his life and gets his all in order and everything looks beautiful on the outside. He had the nice dress. He had the nice job. He had the nice income. He had the nice plush uh, uh, lifestyle, if you will. We know he was a wealthy person. We also know he had tremendous amount of influence. But there was something still missing in Nick, even though circumstantially all everything on the outside looked like it was in order. He was a very high and powerful religious leader. So his faith was in order, if you will, or his religion anyway was in order. His influence was in order. His bank account was in order. So he had everything in order, but there was something still missing inside of him. See, he was self-aware enough that he knew that circumstantially he had a fresh start, but internally he was still missing something. So Nick finds his way to Jesus. You can read the whole story in John chapter 3. Finds his way to Jesus and looks up Jesus. And Jesus and he have a a one-on-one encounter in the middle of the night. And Jesus basically tells him the secret sauce that you're needing, that internal part that you're missing, that's really going to change you and give you that fresh start is that you must be born again. So I must say today on the front end of my message that if you have never experienced being born again, that is paramount, that is mission critical to any form, shape of a fresh start that you could possibly have. That's why, again, I think Haggai is pointing back to the Lord so many times is because if you've never been born again, then you will never have the internal, fresh, sustainable, fresh start that needs to happen. That happens every day. And it happens every day. And you can even read the book of Lamentations on this. It's mercies. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. That's why I'm saying every day becomes a fresh start when you have this deep internal relationship with Jesus. So let me say this to you. I'll give an invitation right here on the front of the message and to say this. If you have never experienced being born again, don't leave this building without talking to someone. Find somebody with a lanyard and go up to them and say, what does it mean to be born again? Come see me in the gallery area. Find one of our pastors, one of our deacons and talk to them and just ask them the question, what does that mean to be born again? Because that 
that is will where the real fresh start happens. And if you ever substitute the external fresh start and forget the internal, you're selling yourself short. So find the book of Haggai. We'll be there in just a moment. Because if you go back to the book of Haggai, if you were here last week, you remember that they were getting a fresh start after 70 years, 70 long, grueling years. First, it was the Assyrians, then it was the Babylonians, and now it's the Persians. And they're literally, even though they're being set free under Persian rule, they're still a puppet government to the king of Persia. So all along, they for 70 years have been feeling in uh, this rip apart of freedom, this, this, this oppression, this, this, this lostness, this being ripped out of their land, everything being pillaged. It was a dark, 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 dark season for them. 70 years. Now they're going back home. Now they're restarting life. A remnant of the people, the Bible refers to them, a remnant of the people, probably about 50,000 scholars estimate, moved back. Only about a sixth of the Jewish uh, population of that day. So we're talking about a very small amount. Move back. They get a, the high priest is in place, Joshua, and, and a guy named Zerubbabel, who was the grandson of Jehoiachin, who is of the lineage of David. So here's the external fresh start that they were going through. The external fresh start was this. They've got their monarchy back in place. They're back in their motherland. They have people. They have priests. They have kings. They have rulers. They are getting an external fresh start. But what happens to them internally is they grow stagnant. They get cluttered lives. They get busy. They get distracted. They get a lot of other things going on. And they kind of forget the internal workings of God and they just focus on the external benefits of living free in Christ, living free in their motherland. So here's what I'm saying. We can easily substitute the internal and be satisfied, sadly, with external circumstantial changes, fresh starts. Don't miss the internal. In fact, they lost their space for God. They lost their passion for God. Enough, and again, I mentioned this last week, I mentioned again this week, that Zechariah was a prophet that was alongside at the same time in the same location as Haggai. And Zechariah records this about how God was feeling about his people. In Zechariah chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, that I am exceedingly jealous. And then he goes on in verse 15, and he says again, I am exceedingly angry. God was not happy. They had their land back, they had their king back, they had their priest back, they had their lives back, they had their homes back. In fact, they had paneled homes. We talked about that last week. They had everything externally uh, back in order, but they had forgotten God in this. And God became jealous. And that's okay. And God became angry. And that's okay because if you're God, you can become angry. You make up the rules. And so he does. He becomes angry. What, ha- what had happened is they'd just forgotten to do the work of God. See, God was no longer getting their first and their best. He was getting their last and their scraps. Ezra chapter 4, verse 24, the historical writing in this time period, he says, Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Now, you don't realize this time span whenever it says, and the work of the Lord stopped. And then it says it didn't start again until the reign of Darius. That was 17 long years. 
that nothing in the work of God continued on. And now take your Bibles and let's look at Haggai. Because last week, as we talked about, they had to do a reassessment. Where are we about the priorities and the pleasures? Are we living for our priorities and our pleasures? Are we living for God's priorities and God's pleasures? And if we don't right-size that, again, we're not going to be able to have that internal fresh start like we should. And right-sizing that and getting our focus on what God's plan is for our life and getting Him working in us is a part of that reassessment. Hopefully you've had time to do that this week. Hopefully you've taken time to do that this week. But how do we realign? We reassess, we move to realignment. This is where change begins to happen. And what happens in verse 12, and I just mentioned it quickly last week, is this is what it says in verse 12. And Zerubbabel, he's the the governor, the son of Shealtel, I'm not going to say that again, so there you go, you can figure that one out. And Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, I'll not say that one again either. The high priest and the remnant of the people. Interesting, he mentions three different categories of people. You've got Zerubbabel, you've got Joshua, and you've got the remnant. Now keep going. Of the people. Obeyed, everyone from top to bottom, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. And the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. See, God spoke, people obeyed. You're going to see in a little bit where God speaks and the people don't obey. But right now, God speaks and the people make adjustments. See, that's the so, that's so critical to this whole fresh start idea is that I'm going to hear God speak as I reassess and then I'm going to realign to his will. And then there's going to be this emotional union. Notice this, they obeyed the voice of the Lord and notice this, that they also had this deep fear and respect for God. Now, this is not the bad kind of fear, the fear that makes you want to run from God. This is the kind of fear that makes you want to go to God. There's a big difference in the two. It's the same kind of fear that it says in Proverbs chapter 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So actually, this is a good kind of fear. This is that respect. That is that emotional connection. This is that longing. It's that, that I know my place in the world and I know God's place in the world. It's a good kind of fear. And so he said, these people had a deep fear for God. They obeyed and they connected with God. So let's talk about what it takes to realign. After we reassess, we realign. And we're going to look at this in just three quick bucket points, bullet points here. Number one is you're going to live your 180. You have your 180. 180 degrees. You're going down this path. You get to the end of this road, this, this ditch, this dead end, this detour, and you're waking up today. I don't know if it's you today, you last week, you oh, uh, next week. I don't know when you'll wake up, but I'm on the wrong road. And you will have to decide what it's going to take for you to do a 180 and get back on track with God. But you're going to have to do that. You're going to have to go this way and you're going to have to return and come back to God. What got you here won't get you there. It's more than a good book title. It's actually what we have to do in our lives. Change is what it's going to take. Every new beginning comes from other beginnings in, Seneca said. That means I've got to see something end in my life that was once started in my life if I'm going to see a new fresh start in my life. So what is the thing that needs to end? We've talked about Zechariah enough. Let's go over and read Zechariah. Chapter 1, 
And we're going to notice something here as we read Zechariah. He's going to tell us exactly what a 180 looks like. He said, the Lord was very angry with your fathers, okay? And again, this is referring back to before they went into captivity because they, because they didn't listen to God. And this is the fathers of the people of Israel and the people of Judea. And now he is coming to them. He's saying, therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts. Now, circle that phrase. He's going to say it three different times in this verse. Total in the book of Zechariah. 53 times he will refer to God as the Lord of hosts. We'll come back and talk about that in a moment. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That is the 180. I have gotten off track from you, God. I've been doing it my way, calling it my own way, and I have ended. I've come to a point that it's not working, and I'm going to have to do a 180. I'm going to have to turn and come back to you. I'm going to return to you. But guess what, God? You're going to return to me. It's going to be this beautiful union. Now, what he's pointing to is this, this, this gap of separation. And when we go over here and we do it our way, we create a gap between us and God. And what happens is we get to the end of our roads and we look back and say, God, you failed me. God, you left me. God, when are you going to get me out of this mess? When all along, we were the ones who got us in the mess to begin with. We stopped listening. We stopped leaning in. We stopped obeying whenever he spoke. And we're going to have to come back to where we got off track. And this is a principle that we're just going to have to learn in our lives constantly, constantly keeping ourselves in check, and that we will look at what is God saying? What is his word telling me? This is what Proverbs 22, 28 says, do not move the ancient boundary stone set by your ancestors. He's referring to markers or landmarkers or principles or stakes in the ground, that these were put there. Your ancestors put them there. These boundaries, we don't need to move the boundaries. We don't need to rewrite moral codes of conduct. We don't need to develop a new ethics. There's not a business ethics and a world ethics and a church ethics. There's ethics. There's not a right and a wrong for you and a right and a wrong for me. It's not you living your truth and me living my truth. There is truth. So I don't need to move and rewrite the boundaries. But what happens, though, if I don't stop And course correct, I will veer off. Jeremiah, speaking of the fathers that God was angry with, was having to deal with people who wouldn't listen. He says, thus says the Lord, it says in Jeremiah 6, 16. This is a verse that's been just working me up one side and down the other lately. He says, stand by the roads. Don't get off the road. Life's busy. You've got to stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. I need to find that path. I have taken my detour. I've done it my own way. And now I'm over here at this dead end. How am I? I need to ask for the ancient path. I need to stop long enough. I need to listen for, deep enough. I need to look out far enough. And I say, God, what are you about? Walk in it. Get back on track. And then what does he say he will do? He will give us rest. He will give us rest for our souls. The problem is, is that some people choose not to do that. And what happens to them? But they said, we will not walk in it. You're going to have to choose. You got two paths. Your path, God's path. Your pleasure, God's pleasure. Your priorities, God's priorities. 
You get off the path, you start writing your own rules, you make your own mess. I can remember one time going camping with my younger brother who's a a former marine, land navigation trained and all that kind of stuff. And so we decided, he decided, to take us off track as we went hiking into the Hobbs estate, taking uh, his boy, my boy, we all went out to go hiking. And Lori had said, now this is Friday night, Lori said on Saturday morning there's peewee football practice and the kids have, uh, uh, I think it was Josh, has, um, has his pictures on that day so don't be late you can probably tell where i might be going with this and so we go out there but i'm going to come back early and he's going to stay so he took us on this trail that was he took us off track and took us but i did notice where we got off track and so i noticed where the trail was and so the saturday morning as i'm leaving to take josh back to get him back on time because i've been given an ultimatum and I'm going to get back on time. And so what basically I do is I get up to the trail and I start walking. I thought, I'm pretty good. My brother has nothing on me. And so then I thought, okay, there's a big hill that we can go over and get there faster. Or we can go around and it will take us longer. So a shortcut is what I, I call those. It ends up being a long cut. And so what we did is we climbed up. And what I thought was the top of the hill was where the car was, was not where the car was. Then I look back down and I cannot find the trail. So I've got my peewee football boy and uh, I'm, this is Fat Mike days. So I'm out of shape and, and I've just climbed a hill and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And now my, I'm climbing over things, but he's having to really climb over things. He's tired. We're trying to get out. I've got an ultimatum by my wife. I got to make it or die. And I might die out in the, out in the field. And so here I am. I got to get back. So I start listening and I listen and I sit, there's, I think there's a highway over there. It's like 71. It's just right over there. Or Highway 12 is right, just right over there. And so we start walking in the, in the way of the path. And we get back to the highway. Long story short, we make it back to the car. We make it back. I speed to get to practice. I think we made it in time for pictures. I don't know 100%. I'm still living to tell about it. So the short story of that is, you might think that you know the best path for your life. Until you get to the top of the hill and you look back and you can't find your way back. My friends, wherever you are, if you want a real fresh start, do your 180, get back on track wherever you left God. He's waiting for you. You return to Him, He will return to you. Number two, live strong. Live strong. When you look at uh, Haggai, go back to Haggai chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Uh, If you go back there, he says, Then Haggai, um, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people in the Lord's message and said, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up in the spirit, and it goes through the same names, Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant of the people. Now notice what the people will do this time. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. This is beautiful. I wrote in the margin of my Bible, this is revival. This is when God really takes hold because they were doing it their own ways. They did a 180. They come back to God and they get back on track and they do exactly what God told him to do in the beginning, which was to build his place of worship. And they get back on track. It's a beautiful thing. But what's also beautiful and powerful about this is when God said, I am with you. I'm with you. Remember Zechariah just got through saying, we're apart. Now we're back together. We're separated. You're doing it your own way. 
we're back on the same page again. I am with you. But he doesn't just say it once. Go down to chapter 2, uh, verse 4. He says, he's going to say it again. He says, be strong to Zerubbabel. He says, be strong to Joshua. He says, be strong to all the people in the land. And then he said, work for I am with you. And then he goes on in the next verse and he says, my spirit remains in your midst. So the point is this, is that whenever I do my 180, I come back to where I left God and I get back on track with God. Now I'm with God and God is with me. His spirit is in my midst. He says it twice in the two chapters. I am with you. But notice what he also says. He said it to the governor, Zerubbabel. He said it to Joshua. He said it to the people, be strong. See, some of us get over here and we think we're strong until we fall apart. But when we are walking hand in hand, heart in heart with the Spirit of God, now we're strong. Now we're strong. I don't care if you're a king. I don't care if you're a commoner. If you're a part of the remnant, you are strong. Don't miss those three phrases he said there. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all the people. This is the same directive that David gave Solomon in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 10. When he was building the temple, he told him to be strong. See, when you get about the work of God, there is an infusion of his strength inside of you. Paul says something very similar while he is in prison in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He realized that when I am with Christ and Christ is in me, I am strong. What Joshua, what uh, uh, Zerubbabel, what the remnant had to realize is that when you're in line with God, you are strong. You are invincible. A life principle for you to hang your hat on is you will live at your highest capacity. You will, and your greatest good when you align your life with Jesus. If you're going to do it your way, you're going to live with your results. If you do it God's way, you're going to have the Lord of hosts as your backup. You're going to have the Lord of hosts as your strength. And I emphasize the Lord of hosts. I said we'd come back to that. You saw it three times in Zechariah, a total of 54 times total. But let me tell you about this Lord of hosts phrase. It's used about 300 times in the Old Testament. First time it's used in 1 Samuel. Not that much used until the exile period. 247 times the Lord of hosts is used. The majority of those are in the exilic. That's basically whenever they're living in exile prophets, Jeremiah is one of those. Habakkuk, we studied that a few weeks ago, is one of those. And post-exilic, those who come out when they're now back in establishing their freedom, back in their own land, and they're putting their feet back on the ground, the, the remnant that we're speaking of this time period. And the majority of the majority, the vast majority of them, are found in Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now notice this. This is important. 14 times in, in Haggai, it's used the Lord of hosts. 54 times in Zechariah and 24 times in Malachi. What does the Lord of hosts mean? It means all sovereign, all powerful. More greater, powerful than all of the angels' armies, all of man's armies. These people, now here's where it really comes to you and I. 
These people, these Hebrew people had just lived under the oppressive thumb of Assyria, Babylon, and now Persia. And the thing that they learned in the time of their dark oppression was that you may be strong, but my God is stronger. And here's a principle that you just want to hang your hat on. A little insight for our lives. God, God's might is most evident in our life when we are in the most difficult days of our life. See, whenever I can do it, I will do it. But when only God can do it, I now have to depend on God. Some of us have never experienced God as the Lord of hosts because you've always done life yourself. You pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can make ends meet. You can fix the problems of the world and the problems of life. And what, what we might need in this season of fresh start is we might, might need to experience a season when we can't do it. And we have to learn and depend on the power and the presence of the Lord of hosts. Number three is we need to live bold. Live your 180. What's your 180? Where do you need to turn back? Where have you gotten off course? Get back on track. Live that. Get back on track with him. Live strong in the presence of his spirit in your midst, as he said. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm in your midst. We are one. Be strong. Be strong. You're not getting your strength from yourself. You're getting your strength from the spirit of God. But also live bold. Live bold. There's going to be an option that you're going to get to live either by faith or by fear. Choose faith. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. According to the covenant that I made with you, when you came out of the land of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. When you realize that the spirit of God is in your midst, fear can't stay there. But when fear is residing and fear is consuming and fear is controlling and fear, then you have lost contact with the spirit. Let the reality of the spirit guide you, not the consuming of fear control you. For thus says the Lord of hosts, I've already referred to that, yet once more in a little while. Here's what I want us to talk about for a second. When we're living out and we're living a bold life, God gives us all kinds of promises out there. Okay, there are over 2,000 promises in Scripture. I don't know who took time to count them up, but there's that many, okay? 2,000, there is a promise out there, okay? But there's a promise given, but then there's the promise delivered. Sometimes we've heard a promise made, we've read a promise in Scripture, and we're claiming it, but we've yet to see it. What's, how am I supposed to live in the middle of that? You live by faith. It requires a faith walk, a faith life, a a life of, okay, I'm going to wait. Let's go back to that verse. What did God say? He said, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while. Some of you are living in a little while. I hate a little while. I used to ask my family whenever we were traveling somewhere, how much longer in a little while? Uh, you, whenever it's Christmas time and you're ready to open gifts, is it time to open up gifts? In a little while. 
nobody wants a little while. When we say something, we want it now. We want the answer now, but maybe you're living in a little while. And what do you do in a little while? You live by faith. What does that look like? Well, it it involves living expectant. You wait, but you wait with anticipation. You wait with anticipation that God is going to be present, that God's going to show up, that he will be there. Chapter 2 of Haggai. I don't have time to read all these, is full of promises. Eight promises in one chapter. I will shake the heavens. I will shake the nations. I will fill the house with glory. I will give peace. I will bless you. I, I will shake the heavens. I'm about to destroy. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, and make you like a signet ring. Can you imagine Zerubbabel hearing that and saying, Oh, I will. Well, right now I'm ready to be that powerful signet ring in a little while. When you're living in a little while, all you can do is wait with expectation. So what's your little while right now? But also, you live generous. You don't hold it back for safety. You don't keep yourself back. We have pointed out two times already that our resources in life are our time, our talents, and our treasures. In chapter 1, verse 2, they were confused on time. They said, God, we don't have time to build your house. We're built too busy building our house. God says, your time's wrong. Give me your time. Be generous with your time and go build my house. So again, we living for self or we living for God? If we living for God, then we're going to put him as our priority. We're going to put his pleasure as, as first and foremost. Give him your time. Be generous with your time. We've already talked about that they used their talents in chapter 1, verse 15. They, they, they went away and they built, they gave their talents to building the temple of God. Chapter 1, verse uh, 14 and verse 15. They gave their talents, but also we give our treasures. That's where we give of our financial resources. And I know when you start talking about money at church, it makes people really, really nervous. But a part of what it means to have a fresh start that is clean, that is fresh, that is sustainable, that is ongoing, is having a generous spirit with even my money. Consistent, budgeted generosity. David himself had a model for his giving. He would not give. This was his motto. I will not give an offering that costs me nothing. I will not give an offering. It's, it's got to impact me. It's, I've got to feel the offering. I've got to give it. He was building the first temple when he said that. The second temple is being built now. And in verse 7 and 8, look, look with me there. And I will shake the nations so that the treasures, circle the word treasures. I said time, talent, and treasures. Treasures of all the nations shall come in. How do they get in? Do they walk in? Do those little coins walk in? Do the the dollar bills walk in? Do the shekels walk in? No, no, no. People bring them in and they give them. Treasures of the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory. Glory means density of God. The fullness of God is in the house, says the Lord of hosts. And just in case you thought your 401k and your, 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 your Roth IRA and your income is your money, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. When we realize that our time needs to be given generously, our talents need to be given generously, our treasures need to 
be given generously. We began to realign. We began a fresh start that is sustainable, that is life-giving, that you will wake up and experience His mercies new every morning. Malachi was a post-exilic prophet. The same time period, I don't know, it's the exact same era, same date and time, but he writes these words. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. What happened is they brought the tithe, 10% of their income to the, to the worship, to worship God. And it would fund the ministry of the temple of God. Wherever, whatever needed to happen among God's people, whatever needed to happen beyond God's people, that was happened through the people bringing their tithes in. 10%. Now, hang on to that. I thought before I share this, I need to just tee this up. Do you realize that over the past two weeks, just two weeks, what we have been able to do because of people in our church's consistent budgeted generosity, we wrote a check for 40, no, for $74,000 for a new bus for New Day Orphanage so that 45 children and about 12 workers will have access to doctors, will have access to, to get in and out of town. Well, whatever their needs are, we they gave that because you gave that. This, yeah, give the Lord a hand. This, two weeks ago, we gave a microloan to a church planner in southern uh, Asia, South Asia, who is living there and doing the work of an apostle Paul. We call him Stephen to protect his name. We gave a microloan so that he could open a storefront so that that he could, his family would have a source of income. He has to manage the store, do the store, all that kind of stuff. But his Family will, of five will run the store while he goes out and continues to be the Apostle Paul among the Nepali people. That's another round of applause. One more. In two weeks, in the past two weeks, we have a missionary from our church who lives in, 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 in China, in the interior of China, who grew up in our ministry, who's now living in China, called by, by God to live there who we were able to help get her out of China to a place so she can avoid the coronavirus. Because of your giving, consistent budgeted generosity, you make a difference in people's lives. When we bring our tithes into the storehouse, it's not just so we can turn lights on here. It's so that we can turn lights on in people's hearts around the world and in our known neighborhoods. So please understand there is tremendous value. I know it's, it's but, but it's my fresh start. It's your fresh start. And a part of your fresh start is getting aligned with God's plan for yours and my life. I challenge you today to live your 180, to live strong and to live bold, expectant and generous in every area of your life. This will be a challenge. It will not be easy. I'm right now reading C.S. Lewis's autobiography called Surprised by Joy. And I heard a quote in chapter 10 this past week that said this, Where courage is not, no other virtue can survive and expect, except by accident. I've kind of hung on that phrase. Where courage is not, no other virtue can survive except by accident. His headmaster of his, one of the schools that he attended 
told him that, grilled that into him, and that became one of the mantras of his life, even as he was planning on going into World War I to serve in the British Army. Where courage is absent, there's no other virtues, basically is what he's saying. Listen, the courage today that I'm calling you out to do is to realign your life, do your 180, get back on track wherever you left God, live strong by the power of His Spirit inside of you, live bold in a generous expectation of what God's going to do through you.